0: 1 John three nineteen to 24 give ear to the word of God. John says, By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God and whatever we ask. We receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we might that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him, and by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, I, I'm sure in some ways, if you've been here for this whole study or for most of it, that in some regard, I might sound like a broken record because I'm always bringing up the topic of assurance, but that is what First John is really about. And we're going to see that that's not just the theme of the entire book of First John. It's also in many ways the direct and explicit theme of our, of our, of our text. And again, the, the verse in First John that tells us that the whole book is really about uh, the doctrine and experience of assurance is in 1 John 5, verse 13. First John 5, 13, John says... He's telling the people he's writing to. Here's why I wrote this epistle. He says, "I write these things, the things in this letter. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God." So he's writing to Christians. He's writing to the churches. And what is it for? I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. He doesn't want us wandering, you know, wandering around with our fingers crossed, you know, hoping that maybe we're right with God. He wants Christians, well, those who have believed on Christ to know that they are right, that we are right with God, that we have, present tense, uh, eternal life in Jesus Christ. Now, the reason that he wrote the things that he did in this letter that we are looking at even now is so that believers might know that we have eternal life by faith in Christ. And again, that's another way of saying that we might have a settled sense of assurance, peace, peace, not just peace with God spiritually, but that we might have the sense of that peace with God uh, in our hearts as we, as we believe. Um, the, uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith uh, doesn't define it so much, but it describes what assurance is in some ways. In, eight, in, in Chapter 18, uh, Paragraph 1, it says this, "...such as truly believe in the Lord Jesus and love him in sincerity endeavoring to walk in all good conscience before him, may in this life be certainly assured that they are in the state of grace and may rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, which hope shall never make them ashamed. That that is the, the, the truth of Scripture. It's certainly the truth of the Reformed faith. One of the aspects of it is that we might know that we're saved, If you're a believer in Christ, God wants you to know and be sure that you are right with him, that you have heaven as your home. Uh, You might know that many, uh, many even um, evangelical uh, teachers that hold to what we might call Arminianism deny assurance ultimately. The Roman Catholic Church taught that assurance, the same thing I just read about here from the Confession, they said it was anathema. They said you know, they, they, their official teaching is that assurance is anathema that if they what what they're saying is and what many have always said falsely is that well if you if you can be sure that you're right with God, if you can be so sure and certain that when, you know when you die you're going to be going home to be with the Lord forever well, what do they accuse it of? If, well, if you believe that it'll lead to loose living. you'll just live in sin, so basically a lot of these teachers, Roman Catholic and otherwise. They want to keep you in fear. They want to keep you. They think they're keeping you on your toes by keeping you in a perpetual state of doubt. And in many ways, what they really are doing is they're trying to keep you in a perpetual state of dependence upon them. Now, you should always be involved in a, in a Bible-believing, faithful, uh, faithfully teaching church, but you, you are not dependent on the church for your standing before God. It's not how that works, not how it's supposed to work. That's not what they say. They say they, would, they have to keep them. They have to keep you in line with them, uh, and in many ways they do it by undermining your sense of assurance. As awful as that may be, what does the Bible say? He wants you to know that you have eternal life. These things are contrary to Scripture when they act like, like that. You'll notice the confession of faith that I just read in chapter 18 speaks of assurance in a lot of the same ways and terms that we find throughout the book of 1 John. In other words, uh, the conditions, so to speak, of experiencing assurance in Christ involve things like faith, love, and obedience. And these things are not—they're not meritorious. They're not anything by which we earn anything. We don't earn our assurance, much like we don't earn in any way our our salvation. Um, they are simple. They are simple and indispensable conditions of experiencing assurance because they are simply put. They are the evidences of the work of God in your life in, in making you come to Christ for faith, uh, by faith for salvation. And this is the reason these things are indispensable conditions for assurance is because these very things that John keeps talking about in this letter, things like faith, love, and obedience, again, are clear and sure evidence of the work of God in your salvation even the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of all believers. That's what John is talking about throughout this letter. And so I'll ask this morning, and this is, uh, I would assume, with everybody in the room that professes faith in Christ, this is a, a rhetorical question. I would never expect anybody to say no to it, if I'm honest. But have you ever struggled with doubt? Have you ever, in you know, your worst moments or whatever, uh, you know, had, a, had a, a bad day or a bad month or whatever it is and wondered, you know, am I really right with God? You know, and there's all kinds of reasons that we struggle with doubt. We struggle with sin and we think, well, if, if I'm really a believer, how come this? Why do I struggle with X, Y, or Z sin? You know, a real Christian couldn't possibly, right? And that's because we haven't really read Romans 7. We read Romans 6, all about sanctification. Then we read Romans 7 and we get confused and we don't realize Paul's saying that was him as a Christian, and if Paul could say that, who are we to think differently? Have you ever struggled with a lack of assurance or a lack of certainty in your heart uh, that you are truly saved despite the fact that you're a believer in Christ? If we're honest, these struggles are all too common among believers. And, and it always has been that way. This is not a new phenomenon. This isn't some kind of modern problem because John wouldn't have written this otherwise. In John's day in the first century, this was already an issue among among believers. And so John wrote this letter under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to address this uh, this very thing. So if you have struggled with a lack of assurance in the past, or if you were even struggling with doubt and in lack of assurance, right now, uh, know that you are one, you are in good company. Uh, everybody has, I would say, I, I don't know if any professing believer would ever say they've never struggled with a lack of assurance. And I hope that you'll be more than that. Uh, you'll be encouraged by the counsel of the word of God uh, in this book, and even in our sermon text that we're looking at here this this morning, because it's really what John addresses explicitly here. He really he really deals with the topic of assurance in a very direct way. And the first thing that we want to look at from our text is a few things: um, is a lack of assurance, a troubled conscience in a believer, which John speaks of in our text. As I'll put it this way, as a condemning heart. So the first thing we want to look at in our text is what John tells us about a condemning heart in the life of a believer. Look at verses 19 and 20 again. He says, By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him, before God. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Now when John says in verse 19... Uh, by this, by this we shall know we are of the truth. What does this refer to? It's not always an easy thing to answer. In fact, throughout 1 John he says things like this. By this we'll know this. And sometimes it, the thing following that is what he's talking about. But I believe in this case he's, talk, he's pointing us back to verse 18 primarily. So when he says that, that by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. I think he's talking about verse 18 and what he said there when he said, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And so how, what is the, the this, if I can speak incorrectly, what is this that he's referring to? It's, it's a sincere love for the brethren. A sincere love for the brethren is, the, is one of the primary evidences, that we've, as we've been seeing, one of the primary evidences of someone being born of God. Uh, by the Spirit of God and, and faith in Christ. And so when we see the evidence of such love for the brethren in our lives, not perfectly, right, uh, but sincerely, it's because of that we may know and have certainty that we are of the truth and truly know the Lord. Now, it's its probably not uh, much of a conjecture to say that the false teachers, the Gnostics, whatever you want to call them, that were troubling the church in John's day, were speaking things directly contrary to this. When John talks about being of the truth, we're so used to seeing that phrase. They were probably saying, well, you don't, you guys aren't of the truth because you don't follow us. You don't have our special inside, you know, knowledge or gnosis, whatever word they wanted to use for it. And John is saying, no, you don't need some special inside knowledge or some kind of weird, you know, ecstatic, mystical experience. You can know you're of the truth by one of these things. One, that you love the brethren. You have a sincere love for other Christians, for your brother's and sisters in Christ in First John in, in verse 19, John actually uses a word that speaks of assurance explicitly. He says there, "By this we shall what?" The ESV puts it, "We shall reassure our heart before Him, that is, before God." And the word reassure there uh, can be translated as to assure, which we get assurance from, or persuade, or convince. It's the same word that Paul uses in passages like Romans 8.38 and Philippians 1.6, which also, they don't use the word assurance per se, but both those passages deal with assurance in some way or another. Romans 8.38-39, John says this, For I am what? I am sure, the King James says persuaded, and the New American Standard says convinced, but it says I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else, in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So Paul, speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, or writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says he was assured or persuaded or certain of the fact that there's nothing that can separate a believer From the love of God, it's in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing in all creation—like, think about this. There's God, the Creator, and then there's creation. Theologians often talk about the Creator-Creature distinction. That's a fancy way of saying there's a God, and you're not Him, right? He's saying nothing that God has created can separate you from His love. Nothing—not the devil, not you, not anything—can separate you from the love of God. That's in Christ. Jesus, Philippians 1, 1.6, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, uh, Paul there writes, And I am sure, or am confident, of this, what that he, God, he who began a good work in you, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So Paul is telling the Christians in Philippi, on the basis of his his knowledge of their faith, his knowledge of their love for all the saints, he's like, I am persuaded, even if you're not, I am persuaded that you're a believer and that God began a good work in you. And if God began that good work in you and bringing you to faith in Christ and salvation in him, what does he say? God's going to bring it to completion. God finishes what he starts. It's one of the most comforting doctrines in all of scripture. God does not bring you to saving faith in Christ and then leave you to hang on by your fingernails you know, and, and cross your other finger your other fingers to, for dear life that maybe, just maybe you'll, when you die you'll end up in heaven Paul says God finishes what he started, he will bring it to, to completion at the day of Christ Jesus, God finishes what he starts in us by his grace in Christ, when you came to Christ for salvation that was all a thousand percent I'm not good at math but all, all of God's grace and you're persevering in, his, in, his, in the faith in Christ is also all of God's grace. But what, what if we lack assurance? What if, as, as John says in verse 20, what if our hearts condemn us? Which we know, if, if we're honest, at times that's what happens. It is one thing, you know, think about this. You know, we've all probably had the experience, unfortunately, of being gossiped against or being slandered by someone. Even within the church sometimes this happens you know other professing believers sometimes can be the worst uh, of our critics but it's one thing to have someone else accusing and condemning us and casting doubts on our salvation but what do you do when the accuser is within your own your own chest your own your own self your own heart where where do you turn then you know proverbs 423 it says guard your heart for from it from it flows the springs of life just one more reason why we have to guard our hearts but verse 20 has always been a kind of a notoriously difficult passage or verse to interpret or explain. Uh, in fact, commentators on that we would think of as very good, including John Calvin and others, uh, they differ on how we are to take John's statement when John says, "God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Now in a vacuum, none of us have difficulty understanding what that means. If I if, if take the context out of it and say, what is it? do we all agree that God is greater than our heart? We'd all say, of course. What a dumb question. Why would you ever ask me that? Uh, when we say, does God know all things? I hope we would all say, of course, God knows everything. He is omniscient. There is nothing hidden from God's sight. He knows the end from the beginning because he has decreed the end from, from the beginning. But when he says God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Uh, as, as easy as that would be to understand by itself, it's an obvious truth, but we have to ask ourselves and try to figure out, well, is this truth supposed to comfort us or convict us? And different commentators take it two different One of those two ways for the most part. Uh, if it is to convict us, which is possible, Calvin actually held this view to some regard, if it's meant to convict us, it would be as if John were saying that if you think your own heart has something against you, that's nothing, for God really knows how messed up you are. God really knows how sin, which is true. God knows your sin and mine far better than we do. You know, and, and it's a mercy of God that God sort of, I always use the example of, of, a, of a dimmer switch on a light in a house. You know, If God wanted to, and thank God he doesn't, God could just turn the floodlight on at any given moment. You know, if, if you know you, you pray God, you know, like the psalmist says, "Search, my, search me, O God, and know my heart." You know, uh, see if there be any hurtful way in me, and all these things. God could f- turn the floodlight on and go, "You want to see your sin? Okay, here goes," and we'd be crushed by it. God kind of, you know, if I can use the analogy, kind of turns the little dimmer switch up a little bit at a time and shows us because we couldn't handle the whole thing. We don't know the half of our sins. We aren't rightly convicted of of our sin half as much as we should be. But God still has mercy upon us. God certainly knows the extent of our sin, the depth of our sin, the numbers of our sins—things we can't even don't even remember. God has full memory of, uh, and that's that's not what what John is saying here. He's not saying you don't know the half of it. God really has something against you. It would go against everything He's trying, I believe, to say throughout this this letter. Uh, I think John's purpose throughout the letter, in this epistle, has been to comfort and strengthen the assurance. believers in Christ, and so as difficult as, as verse 20 may be for us to quite comprehend exactly what John is saying, I think it's most likely that we are to understand it as being intended to speak comfort to believers and not add into our lack of assurance. It would be a really strange thing to say if John is like, hey Christians, I want you to have a growing and strong sense of assurance, but by the way, just in case you have any question, God really knows how messed up you are. You know, maybe what he's saying in some sense is, yeah, God knew all that ahead of time before He saved you. There's nothing, nothing to surprise you, to, to surprise God now. God, God doesn't save us and then go, oh, I got a lemon. I didn't, I didn't, for- I didn't foresee this was going to be this bad. You know, God knew all these things before He, He saved us. Uh, assurance again. Uh, this is a, a key thing for us to try to keep straight in our minds and hearts. Assurance is never to be found primarily uh, at all, really, in looking for sinless perfection in our lives as believers. Assurance is not to be found in looking for perfection of our love for the brethren. If that were the case, none of us could ever rightly have assurance. It would be utterly impossible because you and I, I don't know if you've noticed this, none of us are sinless yet. And none of us loves each other as we ought. We do love each other if we're believers, but certainly not in any perfect way. We cannot attain for that in this life. We should, we should seek after it sincerely, but we should not think we're going to attain that uh, before God calls us home. Um, so how is assurance found? It's found first and foremost and always by looking to Jesus Christ. That's where it starts. Looking to Jesus Christ and our justification by faith alone is... In him alone, because it's not by our works, it's not by our love for the brethren, it's not by our attempts at obedience that we are freely forgiven of all of our sins and accepted as righteous in God's sight. We aren't saved by works, we're saved by grace. Correct? It's in him alone that we are freely forgiven of all of our sins and accepted as righteous in God's sight that he gives us the verdict of As crazy as it sounds, if you're in Christ, God's verdict upon you is righteous. Like, not just as if you hadn't sinned, righteous, as if you've always done what is right and holy and just in God's sight. Which we had, none of us have ever done on our best day. But who has? Christ, the sinless one who suffered from sinners, who's never done anything except God's will in every way, shape, and form. Obedient to his Father in all things. That is the track record, so to speak. That is the righteousness, the perfect, spotless righteousness of Christ is what is accounted to you by faith in Christ if you're a believer. And so if you're a believer in Christ and sincerely, even if not perfectly, following Christ and loving the brethren when our hearts are troubled and assurance is disturbed we are to look to Christ uh, and be assured that God is greater than our heart and he knows everything he knew everything all of your sins and shortcomings and mine when he chose you before the foundation of the world he he chose to save you before he even made you before he even made anything before the foundation of the world before day 1 it was part of God's eternal decree. There's nothing new now to take God by surprise and overturn his love for you in Christ. There's no such thing as anything surprising God. He knows all things. So the second thing I want to look at in our text, at least briefly, is his confidence in prayer. Not just a condemning heart, but confidence in prayer. Uh, John points us next to one of the great blessings of assurance in the lives of believers That is confidence before God, even confidence in prayer. Look again at verses 21 to 22. He says, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because what? We keep his commandments and do what pleases him. So when you're lacking assurance, when your heart is condemning you, you don't have confidence before God. Now, if you're an unbeliever... You you should know this is true of you. If you're not a believer in Christ yet, you have no reason for confidence before God because you're still in your sins and have not received Christ by faith for salvation. What does the Bible say in Romans 6.23? The wages, you know, what you earn, the wages of sin is what? Wages of sin is death. It's death. Um, In other words, what is it saying? Paul is saying that we deserve or earn... Death and hell by our sin. We earn, we deserve those things because of our rebellion against God. So if you want what's fair, that's what's fair. We don't want fair. We don't want just. We don't. Want, we don't want what we have coming, because that's that's death, not life. But thanks be to God that Romans six twenty three doesn't stop there, does it? You know the, the book of Romans doesn't stop there. He says, for the wages of sin is death, but Great, great, great important little three-letter word there. But the free gift of God, not a wage, the free gift of God is what? Eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Hell is earned, heaven is by grace. Condemnation is earned, salvation is all of grace. It's the free gift of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And if you're a believer in Christ but sometimes struggle with doubt or a lack of assurance, you know that, Uh, When that is the case, what what happens? When you're struggling with a lack of assurance, you lack confidence before God. And this will show up in your prayer life, won't it? It'll show up in your prayer life. Uh, Because assurance and prayer always go together. Which is another reason why assurance is so important. When we're lacking assurance, we're hesitant to pray. We certainly don't have confidence to pray. When your sense of assurance is in some time, in some different ways, to use the words of our confession of faith, shaken, diminished, and intermitted, you know, it kind of comes and goes sometimes. It is often, as the confession of faith puts it, sometimes it is by, quote, negligence of preserving it, by falling into some special sin, which wounds the conscience and grieves the spirit, or by some sudden vehement temptation. In other words, a lot of times we lack assurance or have doubts in things, because of struggles with sin. Plain, plain and simple. Just as it had been said that either, I think I mentioned this a few weeks ago, um, I think I remember I, I told, uh, if you were here, uh, my dad years ago had a coworker that gave him a Bible. And it said on the front cover inside, it says uh, either this book will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from this book. Well, the same kind of thing can be said in many ways of church, Attendance, you know, attending upon the means of grace at church, but it's certainly true of prayer, isn't it? Even private prayer, either either prayer will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from praying. That is very often the way the way things go. Uh, when your conscience is wounded by unconfessed sin or by some besetting sin, it very often, if not always, keeps you. It tends to keep you from praying. You know, we kind of act like like Adam in the Garden of Eden. Remember what Adam did. When he ate the forbidden fruit and realized he was naked, what did he do? He hid. He heard God walking in the cool of the day in the garden. It says, Adam hid himself, as if you can hide yourself from sin makes us all stupid. He, he hid from God, as if God, as if he really thought, oh God, God won't know I'm here, you know. And God gently kind of drew him out. And he could have said much more harsh things, but he, but he didn't do that. Uh, but if by the grace and mercy of the Holy Spirit, we diligently make our calling and election sure, as Peter says in 2 Peter 1.10, and so by doing that, enjoy, enjoy the blessing of assurance, it's then that we tend to not shrink back from prayer. And this gives, uh, at least it reminds me of the exhortation in the book of Hebrews, chapter 4, verse 16. It says some of the same words, really. It says, let us then with confidence, or King James says boldly, Now let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For the believer, God's throne is a throne of grace. Outside of Christ, it's not a throne of grace to us. But in Christ, that's what it becomes, a throne of grace that we can not just come and draw near. We, We don't just kind of shout our requests from afar he says to draw near to God and even to do what? To do it how? With confidence or boldly. That's how we are to pray and come to God if we're in Christ. And that is something that we will much li- we're much more likely to do if we have assurance of our salvation. It's in Christ alone and not on our own that we can draw near to God in prayer and even do so in a, in a way that's bold or confident. If you're a believer in Christ, God would have you draw near to him in prayer. Uh, He would have you to be confident in coming to him in prayer. In other words, he would have you and I pray with confidence that he is truly well pleased to hear and answer us from heaven. That's the point, isn't it? God doesn't want us to be confident in prayer for no reason, as if he's not going to answer but just wants to hear us to see what we'll do. God wants us to know he's well pleased to answer. And what does he say in verse 22? Whatever we ask we receive from him Why? Because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. He doesn't mean anything you ask that's contrary to God's will. You have to interpret one passage by another. If we ask anything according to the will of God, we can know that he hears and will answer. But Jesus said much the same thing in Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 11. It's the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says this, ask and it will be what? Given to you. Uh, Seek and you will. Find, knock, and it will be open to you. He's talking about prayer, right? For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one uh, to the one who knocks it will be open. And then he says, in case we have any doubts, because we still do at times, right? He says, or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? If you then who are evil... He doesn't water it down at all, does he? He doesn't beat around the bush. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? There's a a kind of a, a weird arrogance to the idea among believers that God wouldn't answer our prayers. Because what he's saying is what Jesus is getting at is, you know, we, none of us are perfect parents. The, 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 the longer we are parents, the more we realize this, right? We're, we, we grow in our understanding. We think of your, it's like prayer. If I want to make you feel guilty, all I got to do is bring up prayer or, or how you raised your kids or any such thing and we all kind of, you know, or witnessing to your neighbors. The first thing we think of is how we, how we failed in that regard. But there isn't a person in this room who has children or grandchildren and we, don't, we all have limited means, right? But that we wouldn't, at least want to give our kids whatever we can. There's not much that a parent won't do for their kids. There's not, there certainly isn't anything we wouldn't want to do for their good. And yet we think that of ourselves, but we're evil. We are selfish by nature. And he's saying, God's not evil. He's the opposite of evil. So if you're evil and you give good gifts to your kids, how could you possibly imagine God wouldn't answer your prayers if you're a child of God? Through faith in Christ. Now, when John says we'll receive what we ask of God, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him, we have to be careful we don't misunderstand what John is saying here. He's not saying that you earn answers to your prayers. It's not how that works. John Stott puts it this way. Obedience, and again, he's not saying perfect obedience. Obedience is the indispensable condition, not the meritorious cause of answered prayer. There's a difference between a condition and a cause. He's saying it's the indispensable condition; it, it cannot do it without it. It must be present, but it's not the meritorious cause of God answering our prayers. Just as sincerely walking with God in Christ and loving the brethren is the way to assurance, so it is the way to fellowship with God in prayer. And just as our children, you think about it this way, just as our, as our kids, our grandkids. They don't earn our love, at least they shouldn't have to try to do that. Just as they don't earn our love, they don't earn their spot in our family. But we as parents are often pleased to reward their obedience as imperfect as it is in order to encourage them in it. Even so, very often God is well pleased to reward his children in many ways, all by his grace uh, when even our best good works and prayers are sorely lacking. There is sin attached to every good work you will ever do in this life. There is imperfection, to say the least, in every good thing you will ever do in the name of Christ in this life. And yet God is well pleased by it. He sanctifies and accepts even your good works, if you're in Christ, in Christ. He accepts your good works the same way he accepts you, by grace alone, in Christ alone you could say in some sense he kind of sees your good works through the filter of of the blood of Christ and the work of sanctifying work of his holy spirit and so while there's so much that falls short in all of them God is well pleased by them our worship is the same way I don't know if you've noticed uh, maybe even this morning uh, but our worship is no is not nowhere near perfect not our singing not my singing not our praying not anything it's like you know it, it's it's if, if you had to be perfect in it for God to accept it, we should just lock the doors and go. But God accepts and sanctifies even our worship by his grace and by the work of his spirit. Uh, so that, that's, that's how God even rewards and is pleased to reward by his grace and answer our prayers um, by them. So our, our, our walking in fellowship with God, our love of the brethren, is not in any way meritorious when, you know, when, when if God says no, which sometimes that's an answer to prayer. When God says no, we don't go. Well, I guess I didn't do X, Y, or Z enough. I guess I didn't pray enough. I guess I didn't love my brethren enough. That's not what it's talking about at all. But if we are walking in fellowship with God and loving the brethren, we should be confident that God is is well pleased to hear and answer our prayers. In fact, He's more willing to hear and answer than we are very often to pray. That's the that's the truth. Well, the third thing is. The commandment of God, last but not least, the commandment of God. In verse 22, John just spoke of of keeping God's commandments. Well, what commandment did did John have in mind? If if we're having our prayers answered because we keep God's commandments and do what's pleasing to him, what command are we specifically to be thinking of? Look at verses 23 to 24. He says, and this is his commandment. He went from the plural to the singular. He went from commandments to one commandment that we believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ and love one another just as he commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. So once again, as throughout this entire letter, love, obedience, and truth, or if you want to put it this way, faith, love, and obedience are the conditions, not not the meritorious conditions, earning of it but they are the conditions of assurance and the commandment of God is first and foremost what? That we believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ did you know that the gospel offer is also a command the gospel is most assuredly an offer of salvation but it's also a command God commands uh, the book of Acts says in Acts 17 uh, 30 He commands all men everywhere to repent, commands it, demands it. It's what we owe unto God uh, for for our sin and for who he is as God. And God also commands all people to believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, for salvation. That's, That's the first and primary command that John has in mind. And so I'll ask simply, have you believed in the name of the son of God? Have you trusted in Jesus Christ alone for salvation? Uh, that's the way to eternal life as well as to confidence in prayer. And what, what else has God commanded that John mentions? And notice, John's, John talks of it as a singular commandment. It's kind of like, remember, when the, when the people asked Jesus, the, the lawyer or whoever it was, asked Jesus, what's the great commandment? And Jesus gave him two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. On these hang all the law and the prophets, he said, the whole Bible. Those are the two things that it's about. In the same way, here he says that we are to believe in the name of the Son of God and that we love one another. It's it's really one command in a sense, not even just two. And so simple as that. If we believe on Christ and love the brethren, we abide in God. We can know that we abide in God, and God abides with us. In other words, we have fellowship with God. We have salvation in Christ. And how do we know this? How how are you and I as believers to know this and experience it? He says, we, this, by this we know that he abides in us. How? By the Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit that he has given us. Paul says much the same thing in Romans 8.16. He says, the Spirit himself, that is the Holy Spirit, the Spirit himself bears witness, testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. It's the Holy Spirit that leads you to cry out, Abba, Father, to God, to call God your Father through faith in Christ. Now, how does the Spirit bear witness with our spirit that we are children of God? Um, How does he do this? He does this by working faith and love in us. That is why Paul says in Romans 8.14, a a couple verses before that, he says, all who are what? Led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. Again, we aren't to look to some mystical experience, some, you know, I don't know what you want to call it, something like that, some emotional experience. We are to look for the evidences of the work of the Spirit that the Bible has stated for us plainly. Obeying God's commands, again, not perfectly, loving the brethren and believing the truth of Christ. That's, that's, those are the simple tests of, of, the son, of, of those who are born of God. John Stott, I think, summarizes this message of uh, verse 24 in particular and also of the whole text when he writes this. He says, So if we would set our hearts at rest when they accuse and condemn us, we must look for evidence of the Spirit's working, and particularly whether he is enabling us to believe in Christ, to obey God's commands, and to love our brothers. For the condition of Christ dwelling in us and of our dwelling in him is this comprehensive obedience, obeying God's commands, and the evidence of the indwelling is the gift, uh, and the evidence of the indwelling is the gift of the Spirit. In other words, if you, are, if you are loving the brethren, as imperfectly as it may be, sincerely loving your brothers and sisters in Christ, and you are sincerely following the commands of God and believing the truth, why is that? What could possibly explain that but the work of the Holy Spirit? Because on our own, we might kid ourselves, but on our own we would never do any of these things. We would never have believed on Christ for salvation. We would never love the brethren. We would never, never obey God's commands from the heart. We'd never have any desire to obey God's commands without the Holy Spirit working that in us. The very fact that you're frustrated by your own sin is evidence of the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. On our own, we like our sin. We don't want any part of repenting of it. We just don't like the consequences. When you're frustrated with your sin and your shortcomings, that, oddly enough, is evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit. And and your repenting of sin, as, as imperfect as that is, is the work of the Holy Spirit alone. And so may God enable us who believe on Christ to set our hearts at rest in Him in this way that we might have assurance and confidence before God in prayer and all to His glory. Amen.